The message you are listening to is recorded by Campus Outreach for the 2018 New Year's Conference. More information about the New Year's Conference can be found at newyearsconference.com. Assumption there's more than one race, and I believe that that's false. Race is a social construct that was given out by people who were in a place of position and privilege and enforced upon those who were inferior than them. And the reality of this social construct has then allowed us to believe that there are different races, different species of human beings. And that led to various heinous acts such as chattel slavery, such as the genocide of the indigenous nations that are first here in this continent that we call home, the issues that we see throughout the East and the West. And when you begin to frame that and say that there are many races that need to be reconciled, I'm like, I can't bang with that because in scripture we see the opposite. The opposite is that there is one human race. And within this one race of people, there is equally shared attributes of God amongst us all, which then negates the idea of superiority and inferiority because every single one of us equally is an image bearer of our creator. So although there is one human race, y'all should know that I don't bang with the term color blindness because it's not a real thing. So inside of this human race is the gorgeous reality of the different ethnic people groups that God created out of his genius for his glory. So I would say let's do away with the term racial and replace it with ethnic. But then there's this term reconciliation. The reason I don't bang with the term reconciliation as it deals with the ethnicities here in the United States is because by definition, conciliation means the removal of animosity, distrust, and hate from people who were once in conflict. Or they started out with no animosity, distrust, and hate. And throughout the expanse of the age of discovery, never in mass, in the United States, has there ever been a point of conciliation amongst the nations, amongst the ethnicities? It's never happened in mass. So when we say we want reconciliation, we're saying we want to once, a bit, once again become conciled like we once were, but what do you do when there was never a point of conciliation? You're trying to grab something that has never existed. So I say pull back the term reconciliation and insert the term conciliation. So ethnic conciliation is what I believe the marching orders that the church is in possession of to live out on this side of eternity, not just in America. But there's a problem. People are like, but wait a minute, reconciliation, that's a gospel term. That's a biblical term. And I'm like, it is. And it proves my perspective all the more. Because the reality of being reconciled to God points us back to a time in human history when there was no animosity, distrust, or hatred between God and the human race. And guess when that took place? In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, in the garden. And that even further substantiates my perspective of the one human race because in Genesis we read that Adam calls his bride Eve, which means the mother of all living. And then you bring into dialogue Acts chapter 17 verse 26 in which Paul tells the Areopagus, he tells them that from one man, all of the nations, but the Greek word is ethne where we get ethnicity, all of the ethnicities flow into the stream of one 
man, and that one man is Adam. So at one point in human history, God had no beef with the human race. The human race had no beef with God and had no beef between man and woman. All was right, and that was God's original design. That was our point of conciliation with God and with each other. But when sin was introduced, we were separated from God. There was divisiveness and sinfulness and brokenness injected into the core of the human relationships between man and woman. And we've been living it ever since. But the work of Jesus has produced a positional reality of ethnic conciliation. Now, what I mean by that is I'm not talking about this otherworldliness, this pie in the sky, this you will get yours on the other side. I ain't talking about that. Because that's the stuff that slave masters used to tell slaves. You stay in your position as a slave, as a piece of property, as three-fifths of an individual on this side, and you can still love Jesus, but you're going to get yours in eternity, but right now you better pick that cotton. So the reality of what I'm talking about is this, is that Jesus has created one new family made up of every nation, tribe, and tongue. His work will not be stopped. So positionally, when you read Revelation 7, when you read Revelation 21, ethnic conciliation is going to be reality for all of our eternal existence. But practically, right now, we're not resembling that reality. That's where the work must take place. We know what we're marching towards, but we sure ain't there. And even with the story that we heard from our brother Steve and Mike, that is one small example of what the church's marching orders should look like. The world should be knocking down our doors. Because at the end of the day, one missiologist put it this way, the church, not the building, but the people of God, the family of God, the living stones, as Peter calls us, the church by definition is a sociological impossibility. It's a sociological impossibility. What does that mean? That means people from various ethnicities, different social classes, different genders, different past lifestyles, different stories, all come together with diversified realities, but yet there is one common confession. Jesus is my Lord. The reality of the church's existence shows the power of the gospel on display. The gospel is not just a message that we put in the last five minutes of a sermon. The gospel is the very essence of why we live, move, and have our being on this side of eternity. The kingdom of God becomes revealed to the world when the church is the church. You see, we are a preview of the coming kingdom. The church is not what we go to. It's not what we do on Sunday mornings. The church is the living organism known as the people of God. And what we are called to do is to be a snapshot of what our eternal existence is going to look like. How many of y'all saw Avengers Infinity War? Y'all saw that? In 2018, if you saw Avengers, you can... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Because like 50 of y'all didn't see it. And I'm like, dang, there goes that illustration. But here's the thing. Even if you didn't see it, that was the most previewed preview in the history 
of movie previews. That thing had over 250 million views on YouTube within a short amount of time. And the crazy thing about that is that propelled this excitement for people to say, take my money now. I want to be there. I want to watch that. I will go there. I will sleep in a sleeping bag. I will skip my classes so I can be there for opening night. That's dedication. God bless the four of y'all that did that. But that preview built anticipation. Now, they did it for capitalistic reasons. They wanted to capitalize on all 250 million people to watch that so they can get their greenbacks. But for the church, it's not a marketing scheme. It's a reality. We are the two-minute preview for the full-length motion picture of eternity. And when people watch us living out the convictions of our Savior, it's not their money that we're after. We want them to know it's the opposite. Jesus wants to purchase your soul and make you a citizen of his kingdom. So as we look at this text tonight, I believe this. I believe, and I may sound biased when I say this, but I'm just going to say it. I believe this present generation is the most prone and ready of any other living American generation to introduce ethnic conciliation on a massive level to the American landscape. I believe it. The reason I believe it is because the millennial generation and even Gen Z are the most ethnically diverse generations in American history. And the reality of that is this is the most technologically in tune. I mean, it's digital natives, this generation and anyone past this. Every other generation besides millennials and older, they're all digital immigrants. We can make the story of God and the power of the gospel viral if we just walk out the convictions of our Savior. To the point that as we engage with not just preaching the salvific atoning work of Jesus, but we couple that with the social action that God calls us to live out in obedience to the social and spiritual commands of Jesus that we'll even see in this passage, that is going to make the world recognize they love God and they want to see humanity transformed through the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit. So as we look at this, I think this. Ethnic conciliation will become evident when the members of the body of Christ stop withholding compassion from one another. I believe that's the first step. When we stop withholding compassion from one another, ethnic conciliation is going to become a reality. This is exactly what our brothers were talking about. So the first thing we got to focus on is compassion in our character. This is how we're going to remove animosity from the situation. Animosity I'm defining as avoiding people who are different from us by creating micro-communities that purposefully exclude them, a.k.a. a clique. We create a clique to keep people out. As the people of God, we got to stop doing that foolishness. Now, there's a difference between a circle and a clique. Like, if you are in a circle and y'all have common shared interests and you're not exclusive, that's okay. Ain't nothing wrong with that. Like, I'm just going to be honest. Like, if you grew up and you were homeschooled, and you meet another homeschooler, there's certain rhythms that you got that someone raised in a hood public school like me, I'm going to be like, man, y'all super weird right now. I don't know what y'all talking about. 
Even when my wife wanted to homeschool our kids, I fought against it. Because I'm like, I ain't going to have them kids, man. And she was like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I don't, I don't know. But I don't want my kids like that. That's because I had one bad experience with a homeschooler, right? And I didn't understand it. There was nothing wrong with them. I, they didn't fit my paradigm. Wait, you don't go to public school? Who make your lunch? Your mama? Like, what? What is that? How do you go to prom? Like, what is that? Like, uh, seriously, I'm just being honest. But I am a survivor. I, I'm a parent of, of, of three homeschooled children. Amen. Amen. So I got all love for the homeschool community. But I also know what it's like that when the homeschool community clicks up, in my personal experience, and because I went to public school, they own some, mm-hmm, and walking away from me. Like, like, I need to be shamed because I went to a school district that lost its accreditation because could none of us read or write. Like, that, that's on me now? I'm, I'm just keeping it in a buck with y'all. But they treated me some type of way. I was, the min- I was the social minority because I went to public school. And I'm like, man, forget y'all here. Like, that's how I felt. So that's what we have to recognize. Ain't nothing wrong with a circle. You a Notre Dame fan? Gather together after and pray together. Like, amen. Ain't nothing wrong with that. And if you a Clemson fan, join in and just love on them. They need it. So there's a circle. If you accept the Clemson fan, you're a circle. That ain't a click, right? A click is, nah, we exclusive. You can't ride with us until we invite you to be in. So as I look at that, I look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. In verses 31 and 32, Jesus talks about a priest and a Levite that sees a man that was victimized. Let me set up the conversation, though, because I want you to understand what's going on with the nuances and the culture of how Jesus' hearers would have heard this story. Because they weren't American and they didn't live in 2018. So the reality of what is happening is you got this lawyer who has dedicated his life, he has been trained, his expertise... It's not in the judicial law structure of here, but in the word of God. His whole livelihood depended on how he interpreted God's word. So he knew the answers to his questions. The text tells us what his motivation was even stepping to Jesus. There was a crowd following Jesus. This brother wanted Jesus to stop everything and say, hey, look, if y'all want to get to heaven, y'all got to be like this dude right here. This is a profile of someone that is walking rightly before God. Y'all want to go to heaven, be like this brother right here. That's what he wanted Jesus to do. So this whole crowd, like all of us is walking to Jesus in the middle. Oh, boy, like, hey, 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 Jesus, Yeshua, come here, holler at me, boy. Jesus like, what's good? Hey, how do you inherit eternal life? Jesus just put him out there because here's how Jesus would have heard it. It would be like if LeBron James walked on stage and I'm looking up at him and he looking down at me. And he's like, Damon, I don't mean to interrupt y'all, all right? But, um, hey, how do you slam dunk a basketball? Now I'm going to be like, Brian, Brian, homie, I'm 5'7 and a half on a good day when I'm wearing my Timberlands, all right? You 8 foot 15. You get paid $100 million every time you sneeze on a basketball court. Viral clips of you dunking since you was in junior high, bruh. Why are you coming out here and asking me how to dunk a basketball only so that I could be like, you LeBron James case closed, right? 
There's no reason he gonna ask a 5'7 vertically challenged Mexican dude how to dunk a basketball. So Jesus knows the motives because he's fully God. He knows the intentions of old boy's heart. So Jesus just said, you a lawyer, cuz. You tell us what it is. He's like, well, I mean, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Boom. Jesus is like, show you right. Go on and do that, and you'll be all right. Then he keeps it moving. Hey, but Jesus, because he didn't get the answer that he wanted. He wanted Jesus to give him all praise. So he's like, Jesus, <clears throat> hey, who is my neighbor? Who my neighbor, Jesus? Tell me who my neighbor is. Because the cultural understanding of the lawyers and the religious elite of Jesus' day identified a neighbor as such. A male Jew of my same political and theological affiliation. That is a neighbor. A male Jew who was aligned with my political perspective and my theological understanding of God's word, that is my neighbor. So as long as I love another male Jew who is politically a part of the same party that I am and is understanding God's word the same way that I do, that's my neighbor. That means every woman on the planet, every non-Jew on the planet, and every male Jew that's not a part of my political affiliation or my theological understanding, you ain't my neighbor, therefore I ain't got to love you. That's his understanding of neighbor. And Jesus knew that. So how does Jesus answer him? Oh, he tells him a story. He's like, all right, bro, I didn't want to have to do this. <sighs> so check it out, homie. All right. It was a man that was traveling. He got jumped, all right? Left him half dead. And a priest comes walking out. The priest locks eyes with old boy. That's got to be one of the most awkward things in life. Like, you, you ever watch somebody fall? And while they fall, y'all lock eyes, and it's like you can't look away, and you're like, ooh, right? And then you're like pulling out your phone low key, and you're like, yeah, right? And you just, you want to look away, and they, they, they looking at you with all hope in the world, like you're going to save them, and you're like, dang, right? I can't imagine, man. So this boy like walking, and he see the victim, and the text says, that he actually moved to the opposite side. Like he avoided the man on purpose. It wasn't like, oh, snap, I didn't see him. It's, oh, I legit saw him and I kept him moving the other way. Then Jesus says, a Levite showed up. And a Levite did the same thing as the priest. But then Jesus said, a Samaritan. A Samaritan was traveling. Let me give you the context of what the people would have heard. There was so much hatred and animosity between Jews and Samaritans. And it goes deep, way, way, way back. Because they were half Jewish and half Assyrian. So they saw them as half-breeds. So they really weren't fully Jewish. They didn't worship in Jerusalem. So they was like, you the social outcast. So when they heard the word Samaritan, because Jesus never gives the ethnicity of the victim. But the people would have assumed the victim to be a Jewish individual. And we know the Levite and the priest were Jews. But Jesus, syntactually, in the way that he structured and ordered the sentence, he led with Samaritan for the first word, which means Jesus was overemphasizing the word Samaritan to give everybody an understanding that this Samaritan had stepped on the scene. Now, because there was so much hatred, People would have heard Samaritan and they would have automatically thought of slurs in their mind. 
Similar like with me being Mexican, people are like, I mean, literally, like if someone would have said, hey, who spoke at that conference y'all went to? Oh, it was this dude named D.A. Horton, Damon Horton. Oh, that wet back, that beaner, for real? That's who y'all was listening to? It got real quiet, like, oh, snap the heat. Yeah, I just, that's what they would have heard. When Jesus said, a Samaritan, they's like, ooh, he probably going to pick his pockets. Ooh, you know how them Samaritans be. Oh, I know. Samaritan what? He going to finish the job. Like, all negativity. All negativity. But Jesus said the Samaritan did what? Had compassion on the victim. Mind blown. Folk was like, oh, snap. The supposed villain is the hero of the story. Jesus, where are you going with this? It's amazing because then we recognize that this man had to press through all of the tensions that were there ethnically in the day to help a victim of a people group that was known for spitting, hurling insults, ethnic slurs on his own people, and they did it back. It's like, you're going to clap at us, we're going to clap back. And there's hundreds and hundreds of years of this inner ethnic tension between these two people groups and Jesus puts it out there Jesus didn't run from the elephants in the room he chopped them up and said okay this is done with let's move forward with kingdom life he didn't let it just sit in the room Jesus tackled it head on in addition to that we see that this Samaritan had compassion in his character towards the individual the other thing that we have to recognize is in addition to that he had compassion in his communication about the individual. The second thing about compassion in our communication, this is going to deal with the distrust. Distrust is when we profile an entire group of people based on bad interactions with a few of individuals who are a part of that same group. Just like I was talking about my homeschool in, in encounters. It's a similar situation when it comes to different ethnicities or even people of the same ethnicities. Like, I have family members that are darker than me, and they call me Weddle, which is because I have fairer skin color. And they be like, you really ain't Mexican, you really ain't this, like, you really ain't that. Oh, you privileged, man, you look more white than me, so people going to treat you. Like, all that stuff, it happens intra-ethnically. Light-skinned sisters get mad at dark-skinned sisters. I done seen them fight so many times, and I got some in my family, and they just like, you think you better than me because you got lighter skin and you got straighter hair. Like, I done seen this so many times, it's like, dang, and there's deep-rooted wounds. And the same thing, it's like, oh, well, you, you a step-cousin, or you a step-brother, or a step-sister, or you, you this, or, or you that, or, oh, you're Korean, you ain't Chinese, or, oh, man, you Puerto Rican, not Mexican. Like, I can't tell you how many times when I lived in Florida, the people was clowning me for being Mexican, and my homies was Puerto Rican and Cuban. And the funny thing about it is the main two dudes ended up marrying Mexican girls. And I'm like, yeah, I felt like I helped sow that seed, man. Like, I showed y'all the way, right? You know what I'm saying? Like... Y'all used to clown me, and I'd go back at them. And I remember, man, we're all Christians, and we're going back and forth with each other. Intra-ethnically, amongst people of God, fussing with each other, using ethnic slurs against each other. But at the end of the day, we're like, oh, but we're still homies, man. We're still people in Christ, but looking at each other with the side eye. We got to have compassion in our speech. In the Good Samaritan, this brother put his money where his mouth was because not only did he help the victim he took him to a motel and he told the motel keeper hey listen he runs up the bill 
I got him. Whatever you got to spend, I'm going to come back and I'm going to take care of him. He didn't throw any shade on the victim. He was more focused on helping this man who was a fellow image bearer of God, who was victimized and in need. All this ethnic tension went out the window because he saw him as a fellow human being that had a felt need. And he spoke with care and compassion to a non-biased third party. Take care of this man and I will take care of any bill that his needs exceed when I come back through. Compassion. He had compassion. So then that leads us to the third point. It's compassion inside of our community. In the parable of the Good Samaritan in verse 36, Jesus asked the scribe and the lawyer. After Jesus gave this story, he said, hey, bro, since you're asking who was the neighbor, in the story I just told, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, showed himself to be a neighbor? And the lawyer's response is amazing. Because in verse 37, here's what he said. The one who showed mercy. Then Jesus said, you go and do likewise. The one who showed mercy. Let me tell you three things that that man's response showed. Number one, it showed that his high idol of prejudice would not even let the ethnicity of the hero of the story come out of his mouth. He completely ignored the fact that the neighbor was a Samaritan. He could not bring himself to speak in an affirming and positive way of this man who was Samaritan. He just said, the one who showed mercy. The second thing that it revealed is that his definition of neighbor was wrong. Because his definition of neighbor would have been the priest and the Levite. But they didn't show themselves to be neighborly. So when he said the one who showed mercy, he actually X'd out the two that he said was his neighbor, who he wanted Jesus to affirm that he had been keeping all of God's law by loving God holistically, and the natural consequence is loving his neighbor holistically. See, he reduced the law of God to be I can love God how I want, and I can love who I want. But Jesus corrected him. And that leads to the third revelation that his answer gives. He did not have eternal life. He didn't have eternal life because he didn't love God with all his heart. And he didn't love his neighbor as God defines neighbor, not as he defined neighbor. So how does God define neighbor? Fellow human beings. Listen to me. We are to be advocates of the love of God. We should not withhold compassion from anybody, anybody. How do I know that? Look at Jesus. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus, he's on tour, all right? He on top of the charts. Everybody loving Jesus at this point in his ministry. Crowds and crowds are following him as he's going to town and village on tour. And Jesus looks at the crowd of people. 
And the passage tells us in Matthew 9.36 that he saw the crowds and he had compassion on them. The way that that's written is that basically in that whole narrative of Jesus being on tour, he saw countless of faces. And with every face that he saw, he never lacked compassion. His compassion went with him just like his clothes went with him. Jesus was never divorced from compassion. Now let's take it a step further. Jesus is fully God. So because he is omniscient, which is a divine attribute, which means he lacks no knowledge, Jesus knows all things. Jesus knew who approached him and just wanted a handout but didn't want him. Jesus knew who ran up to him just to get a healing but never wanted to behold him as Messiah. Jesus knew who just wanted a meal but didn't want a Messiah. And Jesus still gave compassion liberally to everyone that sought after him, whether it was for a handout or whether it was for him. But he knew, and he did not refuse to give compassion. So let's take a step back. We are not omniscient. We are not God. We are fallen. We are broken. For those of us that know Jesus, we're in process of being sanctified. So who do we think we are that we can withhold compassion from anybody? Who are we to withhold the compassion of our God from any fellow human being. If we're doing that, we must repent of that action and say, God, give me a heart for people. Give me a heart to love the ones who may never love you because I have no idea if they will ever embrace you, if they will ever love you, or if they will die in their sins and spend eternity away from you. I don't know that. I ain't got a heaven or hell to put any other individual in. All I know is I want to mirror the compassion of my Savior who gave it liberally to everybody. In addition to that, as we think about that, and we also think about the compassion of Christ in communication, the thing about it is Jesus professed his love for us, not just in word, but in action. In fact, I want to read you Romans chapter 5 verse 8 tells us, but God shows his love. Let me just pause right there. It says God shows his love. It doesn't say God just said he loved, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is what that passage tells us, is that we could not clean ourselves up and then become attractive to God. No, it was while we were at our lowest point spiritually, dead in sin, enslaved to sin, addicted to sin, separated from God. While we were there, Jesus not only said, I love you, he demonstrated his love by going to the cross in our place. Love is a verb. It is action performed. Love is saying, I put your needs above my own. My preferences take the back seat so that I can meet your needs. Now, here's where it gets challenging. Because the pushback is, but what about self-care? What about soul care? What about respite care? There's nothing wrong with those things. Because you can only give out what you have, right? Jesus in the book of Luke when he performed miracles and the people wanted him to be their king forcefully, he dipped away and he got alone with the Father. He got alone to be one-on-one -on -one with the Father and then he went back out to minister to the needs of the people. So here's what we got to understand. When we put the needs of others above ourselves, but we walk in balance with 
regularly going before the Father so he can fill us. As we're meeting the needs of others in the body of Christ, and then they're going to God, and they're being filled up, guess who God is going to use to meet your needs? Your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. When we meet the needs of each other, and the world sees that, we're the preview of the coming kingdom. They're saying that's what Christianity is supposed to look like. Yes, people from diverse backgrounds, diverse situations, diverse scenarios with one common confession. Jesus is my Lord. And we live out that expression of love to each other and to those that are watching. The reason we have the answer, not just in theory, but we can in actuality with a tactile, tangible response show America what the cure for racism is. It's not more government funding, y'all. It's going to help, but that ain't the answer. The answer to racism is not more education. Education doesn't change the heart. It just loads the mind. The reality of what the cure for racism is is the finished work of Jesus. Let me tell you why. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, we see that Jesus' work, his perfect life, his death in our place, his vicarious resurrection, obliterated every wall that would separate sinful human beings from segregating themselves from each other. That's that ethnic conciliation positionally. But practically what has taken place over the last few millennia is that Christians have rebuilt these walls of segregation. We have. Not just ethnically, but linguistically. We've also done it socioeconomically. We've also done it denominationally. We've also done it theologically. I mean, really, in all honesty, when I look at the American landscape, all it is is gangbanging but with theology instead of bullets, man. Legit, it really is. And the reality is I'm not saying throw away healthy doctrine. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is doctrine shouldn't divide us in the sense of we have a common profession of Jesus. But doctrine makes us probe the idea, are we worshiping the same Jesus? Are we preaching the same Jesus? Are we embodying the same gospel? Because we inherited a society specifically in the American church, where there's been this false dichotomy created. Either you are A, about the gospel, or B, social action. And the reality is, it's both and, not either or. It is about proclaiming the finished work of Jesus while meeting the needs of those who are afflicted in our proximity. It's both and. That's what Jesus did. And the reality of what we understand is that Jesus incarnated in the flesh and he preached to those who were far off and those who were near and he preached the same message the message of peace what does that mean an absence of war no it means reconciliation where there's no more animosity distrust and hatred between God and human beings Jesus preached peace, that we can be reconciled to God first with the removal of our sin debt because Jesus paid it all. And then secondly, that naturally allows us horizontally to be now reconciled together as one new family. So he preached peace to those who were near and those who were far. It reminds me of this. It was a time when my wife and I, 
hosted a barbecue at our crib, and we invited two different families that wanted to come over for some fellowship because they know that my wife's brisket is so good, it's going to make you hold up a convenience store, right? So please don't go do that, though. <clears throat> so no real talk. Like, she puts this, oh, man, she, number one, she uses all legal, legal spices and herbs, okay, secret things to rub it in. She slow cooks that bad boy for 10.2 hours, and when she unveils that and the steam rolls out, it's like the prayers of intercession from the saints to the nostrils of God. And God is like, that's my daughter, cuz, like right there. And she, she takes a spoon, listen, a spoon, and just slices through like a hot knife through butter. And I mean, it's just, she picks it up, and I mean, I'm like a dog, like, let me get that first bite. So she... Like, throwing, like, ah! like, you know, like, that's all me. And I chew that first morsel of brisket, and I'm like, boy, I'm so glad I wifed you, girl. Like, <laughs> so we invited two families over for some brisket and other fixings, all right? Side note, she be putting that brisket in tamales. Anyway, so <clears throat> I just had to put that out there so y'all know. So this is back in the day, before GPS on the phone. What we used to do is we used to go to this website called MapQuest.com. And on MapQuest.com, you put point A and point B, you would get directions from point A to point B. And then you would press this button, and magically, scientists don't know how, but somehow, in this dinosaur of a box, these pieces of paper would come out with what was on the screen. It used to bug us out back in the early 2000s. And we was like, yo. So there was no GPS on the phones. So we gave both families MapQuest directions. I'm chilling at the crib, watching a basketball game on TV. Phone rings. I pick up my phone. It's my first dude. He says, hey. I don't know where exactly we are or how far we are from your house, but I think we're lost. And I said, okay, well, kind of tell me where you are. Well, there's a church's chicken and a gas station. I'm like, oh, bro, you legit right around the corner. You a block away. But I said, but stay where you are because if I, it's a one way and there's a median and you can't drive over the median, but you got to take a right and a couple of lefts. Just stay where you are because you're going to be more confused. So let me just leave the crib, come and find you, and lead you back to the crib. So I hopped in the whip. Went a block over there, said, follow me, whoops, key skirt, we back at the crib, right? <clears throat> as soon as I pull up and the fam is getting out of their car, my wife walks out with a cordless phone. Now, a cordless phone was before the cellular phone. And a cordless phone kind of had a base that was plugged into the wall, and magically people would push numbers, and it would make this thing ring. Before a cell phone, crazy bug. But you couldn't walk so far outside of your, uh, your, your, your house on the cordless phone. So she brought the cordless phone, and it's the second family, and it's the husband. And he first thing he tells me is, A.D., my wife done got us lost, cuz. And I'm like, oh, 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 whoa, whoa. I'm like, where's she at? Uh, she looking at me crazy. And I was like, okay. I said, bro, I'm going to be honest with you right now. I'm going to keep it all the way 100 with you, man. First thing I need you to do is look at her and say, baby girl, I blacked out. I don't know what I just said. Forgive me for throwing you under the bus. <clears throat> he was like, man, I said, bro, if you want to live to see another day and eat this brisket tonight, you look at your baby girl and say, baby girl, I was tripping. Forgive me. I was wrong, right? He did it. And I heard her go, mm-hmm. Like, that's all she said. <clears throat> And I was like, oh, bruh, I hope you make it. 
So I'm like, well, tell me where you are. He said, hey, man, we at this McDonald's right off the freeway, this exit. I'm like, oh, snap. I'm like, yo. I said, look, man, stay where you are. Homie, you like a mile and a half away, bro. Like, I, just stay where you are. Go get baby girl an ice cream cone. Chill. Make all things good. I'll be there like 12 to 15 minutes depending on traffic. So I hopped in the whip once again, went, found them, and led them back to the crib. And we had some great time enjoying brisket at the crib. It was a good time of fellowship. So what's that got to do with the gospel? <laughs> yeah, like what? <clears throat> Let me tell you. You see, that family that was a block away, they were near to the crib. But they weren't in fellowship at the crib. They were lost. They had the directions. But they didn't know how to get to the crib. So what did I have to do? I had to leave the crib and go find them a block away. And I led them back to my house. But then there was a second family who was two exits down the freeway, 12 minutes away. They were further away. So what did I do? I left the crib and I went and found them and I led them back to the house. That's exactly what Jesus did. Those who were near was the nation of Israel. They had the map quest directions right here. The reality of why that second family got lost he forgot the MapQuest directions and tried to blame it on his wife. So he was out here driving and trying to make sure, hey, I think I'm going the right way. But he was lost. And finally his pride said, I need to call because I don't know how to get there. And I had to find him where he was. That was all of us Gentiles. We didn't have the word of God. We was out here trying to figure life out on our own until we finally heard the gospel and said, Jesus, find me. And Jesus found us and led us back to the comforts of the crib of the family of God. So in the family of God, there should be no racism, sexism, classism, and hostility amongst us. We should confess our sins. We should deal with the own prejudice in our hearts and confess it and begin to develop deep, meaningful relationships with brothers and sisters, irregardless of their ethnic makeup, irregardless of where they come from socially or geographically. And when we do that, we're putting on display the preview of what heaven is going to look like. So as I close and I think through this truth, man, this is the way that we are called to live. We are called to live out the practice of God's son. Before Jesus ascended back to the Father, he gave us all the same job description. It's called the Great Commission. He told us to go into all the world and make disciples of every ethnicity. In the Greek, the phrase is pantata ethne. Literally, it means every single ethnicity. That means we are not to withhold the gospel and proclaiming it from anybody even fellow Christians who are of different ethnicities than us. We must learn how to apply the gospel and the way that we live our lives and specifically with the issues in our heart. And I'm going to be honest with you because typically when conversations like this happens, here's what happens, two extremes that I've seen. One, and I hate to use this term, but socially there's no other way around it. I completely disagree with it, but the term is white. The reason I don't like it, I would challenge you to read this book called Working Towards Whiteness. Working Towards Whiteness is how socially we constructed this term white as an umbrella term for people of European ethnic descent to conglomerate and be housed under so certain benefits in society could be given to them from jobs to houses and things of that nature. It's just a reality. The reason I don't like that term is because there's no such thing as white. But we've operated in ignorance as a nation for so long that now white is a way that we describe people. 
in addition to black and other colors, right? Brown, which is the most ambiguous reality that I can think of color-wise. And so as we think about that, for my white brothers and sisters, often they feel guilt and shame in a talk like this. They do. The idea of the gospel is for you to recognize, not guilt and shame, but to examine your own individual heart to say, where am I in living out ethnic conciliation? And for people of color, often, this is the kind of message we ride like, oh, heck yeah, boy, you better tell them fools about white privilege. You better tell them white evangelicals. Like, that's typically what happens. And for us, we got to learn to deal with our own prejudices as well. Because if I'm going to keep it 300, some of the spaces that I'm invited to preach the gospel in, when it is predominantly white, I get nervous as I'll get out. I'm being honest. From the music selection to the ambiance, and I even have to tell the people, like, hey, look, man, I don't know many of the contemporary Christian music songs that is out right now. This is how I talk. This is who I am. It may offend some of the people, but are you sure you want me to come and speak to y'all? And they're like, no, we need you. And I'm like, you want me to get crucified, right? That's what y'all want? (laughs) I got to be honest. Because I feel like there for a person of color walking into a predominantly white space, these are the things we have to talk about. Is that I feel like there's always this assumption that I should assimilate to dominant culture when I walk into that space. That I have to change the way that I dress. I got to change the way that I talk. I got to change my life narrative to fit a profile. That's not healthy. And if I feel that on a macro level, imagine what students of color feel like on a micro level when they come on campus to a Christian evangelical ministry when they're one of two color faces in a sea of 30 plus white faces. And the music selection is like, what are they singing? Like, what is this? And the topic and the teachings, like, that really, that ain't, hey, that ain't got nothing to do with my life right now. But even as a Latino, I speak to Latinos. And I tell us, when we're planting our churches and we're only speaking Spanish and we're the only Spanish speakers in our neighborhood, are we really considering the nations? Are we considering our Anglo brothers and sisters in the mission of our church? Because if we're only speaking Spanish and they don't speak Spanish, we're saying you're not good enough to enter into our space. Now that's real talk. And that's the kind of real talk people don't want to hear. But the reality of it is, is these are the things that we have to begin to deal with as a family. So that we can move forward. So that we can love each other and say, hey, listen, man, when you said that, that offended me. Oh, you're always playing the victim. No, I'm not playing the victim. I'm telling you I'm a human being and I have feelings. And the way you said that, boy, you straight profiled me when you said that. These are the tensions that we want to sweep under the rug. And guess what happens when we do that? We keep tripping over the same junk. The world ain't looking to us for the answer to these issues. Because we ain't even discussing potential answers to these issues. But the way that it starts is when we uncover the rug of our own hearts. And we say, God, deal with me. I got saved, as y'all know, before I turned 16. It wasn't until I was 23 years old that I confessed my prejudice against white brothers and sisters. 
Seven years I was walking with Jesus. And the reason I was challenged is because a pastor got in my face and said, what is your problem with white people? And I said, bro, my daddy got white in him. What you talking about? What's your problem with white people, Damon? And I'm like, you want me to be, you want me to be truthful right now? Yeah. Okay. Well, when I walk into your churches, this is what I get looked at. This is, this is, this is when people pick up their stuff and they move because I sit down right there. I'm sitting here about to get on an elevator, and everybody's laughing and joking before the elevator doors open, and the elevator doors open, and I walk in, and they're all quiet. And when I walk out, then they reconvene with their fellowship. I'm like, hmm. When people come up to me and say racial profiling doesn't exist, and I'm selling wolf tickets to people, I'm perpetuating a liberal agenda, like, like they judge me and they judge my motives. They say that the times that I got profiled and a police officer admitted that he profiled me, they're saying it didn't happen? I'm like, really? I used to rap, and I'm like, the only reason I feel like y'all want me in your church is to entertain. I ain't no monkey on a stage, man. You only want to bring me in so I can have more black kids come to your youth group and you give me $200 and a meal at Denny's and send me on my way? That's what you think of me? So you know what? I guess I do got a problem with white people, especially white Christians. And I said, I'm going to be honest with y'all. A lot of what the Hebrew Israelites taught me, show makes a lot of sense when I see y'all treat me this way. I had to deal with that stuff. And I had to deal with the ugliness of all the stuff that was in my heart that I didn't even realize that was there until somebody asked me the legit question, what do you have against white people? Nobody's ever asked me what you got against black people. And the reality that I had to wrestle in that struggle with was, man, here's a verse that, 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 that hit me. Psalm 139, 23, and 24, and I want to close with this. The psalmist says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. It's as simple as ABC. The first thing I had to do, I had to ask God to search my heart and surface my hurt. Search my heart and surface my hurt. And when he did that and somebody asked me that question, that's why it all rolled out of my tongue. And I had stories for days. And then I began to realize while I was talking, oh, snap. This man done answered my prayer. I asked him to search my heart, and he surfaced my hurt. The second thing is I had to be honest about the sinfulness that God revealed in my heart. So I had to ask him, then I had to be honest when he said, here it is. And see, I had to confess my sin and fight to walk in repentance. And I've been doing that for 14 years, every day. Fighting my flesh every day when I enter into conversations. And I have to be honest with people because people ask me, hey, man, how can we diversify this? How can we diversify that? How can we do this? And I said, listen, I'm going to be honest with you, but you got to throw tokenism out the window. 
You can't put people of color up there as eye candy. If you really want to change the system, it's going to take systemic change. And if you're legitimately serious about that, then that means shared leadership. Executive decision-making leadership needs to be reflective of at least your community, but more so the kingdom of God. And if you're not on that level, then continue to pray and ask God to massage your heart. But when you are, man, let's talk. So tonight, I want to close by saying this. Are there walls in your heart that keep blocking you from showing compassion to others in the body of Christ? It's not just ethnic. It may be sociological. It may be gender. Are there walls in your heart that you've built that is keeping the flow of Christ's compassion from coming out of you and liberally pouring on to others in the body of Christ? Before I pray, I want to tell you it's been a privilege to be with y'all these last couple of days. The reason I left my family in L.A. to be with y'all is I legitimately believe in y'all. I ain't just saying that. I believe in y'all, each and every one of you. I believe this generation is the most prone generation to embody all that we've talked about in these past couple of days. I just believe we got to go out there and do it. And I believe we can. I appreciate you opening up your heart and your mind and your, and your life to me. I wanted to open up mine to you. I know I can't speak to all 1,200 of y'all on a one-on-one -on -one for four hours each. But I will be out there at my table after service, man. If you want to talk, if you want prayer, if you want questions answered, if you got pushback, man, I'd just love to get a little time with you. So thank you. And let us pray as we enter in time of worship. Father, I pray that you would massage our hearts. And Lord Jesus, as I've been open with my brothers and sisters, I pray that you would get them open to you. And I pray that you would search their heart. And you would surface hurts, Lord God. There were so many wounds in each and every one of us. So many fears. We're scared to say the wrong thing to the wrong person at the wrong time. Lord, what's going to keep us from having meaningful relationships is if we don't deal with the tensions and we don't seek clarity and we don't practice compassion. So, Father, I pray that you would show each and every one of us walls that we have constructed in our heart, built from bricks of woundedness and hurt. And I pray that you would destroy those walls with the power of your love and compassion. And I pray, Jesus, that you would make our hearts prime to show compassion to each other, especially those in the body of Christ, so that as we leave this place, we will be the preview of the coming kingdom, that our relationships will reflect the eternal reality that we are marching toward, that we are one people that are ethnically consiled as the family of God that is made up of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, every gender, Lord God, that is represented out of your creation order. And I pray, Lord God, that we would embody these truths also that we can proclaim your excellencies and your power and your finished work in the name of Jesus so that those who don't know you will receive the invitation to become a part of the family of God. These are prayer requests that are too great for us to answer, so therefore it is on you, and we beg you to answer them in harmony with your will. In Jesus' matchless, conquering name we pray, amen. God bless y'all. I love y'all.
Thank you for listening to this message from Campus Outreach. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without written permission from Campus Outreach.